Right. Well, where have we got to? Uh, yes. Oh, I should say good morning, shouldn't I? Introduce myself. Hello. Uh, good morning. Today is Pentecost Sunday, for those of you who follow the, the uh, universal kind of calendar of the church. So it's more than fitting that for the last two weeks we've spoken so much about the, the meaning of that feast, the Feast of Pentecost, both in Judaism and its later carry-on into Christianity. Pentecost, as I hope we've already seen, lies at the very centre of what we've been calling an Exodus mindset, that essential background understanding without which we won't really get even the New Testament. Today's talk is, as it were, the middle cut of a three-part mini-series on our one-another life. Because the New Testament is absolutely stuffed with references to what we should and shouldn't do to and for one another. And once we think about it, we can detect the very beginnings of the same kind of principles back in the Ten Commandments, which we read a fortnight ago. That Mount Sinai encounter with God, which Pentecost celebrates, was a complete turning point in the history of Israel. There they received a new covenant from God, making them a kingdom of his priests among all the nations of the earth. But that formal commitment to God also involved a commitment to one another because the whole people had to sign up as one to the deal. And anyone crazy enough to refuse would not only be excluding themselves from nationhood under God, which is something devoutly to be wished, but he would certainly have been expelled from the entire community. So having disembarked, as we um, whimsically put it, from the Exodus Express, um, at Mount Sinai. Last week, we then read Jesus' last great sermon, his uh, Last Supper narrative in John's Gospel, or at least a small portion of it from John 15. And there we found that the commandment to love one another was absolutely central to that talk by Jesus. Because the Last Supper, too, was a turning point. Like Sinai, it presents us with a new covenant as Jesus outlined for his people how his work was going to continue in his absence, as it were, through his church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I wonder if we should have a couple of windows open. It seems terribly hot to me. That would be very kind. Thank you. Well, to me at least, the parallel is extremely compelling between the two great Pentecost events in the Bible. At the first one, which we find in Exodus 19 and 20, God gave the law, the rules of life, which would differentiate his newly formed people from that day forward from all the other nations on the face of the earth. Adherence to those rules for living would make them into a people who could truly represent their God. And at the second Pentecost in Acts 2, God gave the Holy Spirit who in the words of Jeremiah 31, would write the laws of God on our very hearts. Making it completely natural, making it easy for us to obey the law. And this presence of the Spirit would duly differentiate the newly formed church from that day forward from all the other people groups on the earth. As we display the character and the power of God through his Spirit in the world. In each case, the primary role of God's people, his kingdom of priests, was not to wrestle or reason people or to conjole or frighten people into believing what we believe. It was simply to set an example 
of a life well lived. The kind of life that would be irresistible. That would make them want to make connections with God. In Judaism, Pentecost also celebrates the harvest. It's their harvest festival, the festival of first fruits. And, and so the two ideas are linked. It is the adherence to the law that they expect to provide fruitfulness. And of course, the symbolism of the Spirit also choosing to come at Pentecost is very clear. He comes to bestow fruitfulness on our life, on our ministry as well. And in that greater context, it makes perfect sense that when Jesus described himself as the true vine, as we saw last week, and us as his branches, the overarching message was simply love one another. Because as he said earlier on in the same talk, in John 13, the love that his disciples show to one another is the only clear sign to the world outside that we are his disciples at all. If the church is not a community of love, then it will utterly fail to communicate to the world the reality of the God who is love. So it shouldn't surprise us in the least that even as Jesus asks us to see ourselves as branches and him as the vine, that we're going to be pruned by God for fruitfulness, that he would emphasize love as the most vital ingredient in evangelism or outreach to the world. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, which is the first, okay? We all want fruitfulness in our lives. We all want flourishing in our lives. We all want to be better connected to Jesus, the true vine. But Jesus himself teaches that only comes about as we love one another. So today, not to belabor the point too much, or just a bit too much, Today, I want to move on from John 15 with its particular emphasis on our personal connection to Jesus and consider what must be the other side of this coin, which is our connections to one another. And for this, I'd love us to turn to Romans 12, and we're going to read verses 1 to 16. If you have a Bible with you, please turn there right away. The, uh, the words will come up uh, on the screen. Oh, they have already. Um, but if you have a bi- your own Bible, it just helps you to know where words are on the page so you can find it again and that sort of thing also if you have a different version you can uh, often get an interesting sidelight on what's going on and uh, i'm not entirely in love with the esv's translation of certain parts of this but it's as good as any so i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members don't all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let's use them. 
if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what's what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Well, I found as I returned to this quite familiar passage last week that I I noticed what looked suspiciously like a three-stage progression in this passage. And the more I looked, the clearer it became. It goes, think, act, feel. The first three verses address how we are to think about ourselves, ourselves and God and others. The second three verses encourage us to be active members of the church, using our different gifts to the full for the benefit of all. And then verses 9 to 16 speak of our emotions, the kind of people we should aim to become on the inside. I can't promise that that was really Paul's intention. I'll have to ask him when I see him. But it does seem to me that there is a movement here from the way we think to the way we act to the way we are on the inside. So let's begin with verses 1 to 3. The way every Christian should think. Now when you see a therefore, you should look and see what it's there for. Right. In the previous chapter, uh, Paul has been correcting Gentile Christians in the Roman church who were lording it over their Jewish counterparts. And he used a startlingly similar metaphor to Jesus, one of the vine and the branches, as he compared the non-Jewish believers to the branches of a wild olive tree taken off and grafted into a cultivated olive tree by the grace of God. With firm gentleness, or gentle firmness, if you prefer. He points out, that it's, it's probably a bit of both, he points out that as God's people, the Jews actually got there first. Just because many of them haven't yet accepted Christ, that doesn't mean that they're discarded by God, they're, not, they're no longer his people. Both Gentile and Jew alike need to accept Jesus as Saviour and Lord. But when they do, the Jewish believer will have a head start. They'll have advantages, certainly in understanding. And we've been calling this the Exodus mindset. Therefore, chapter 12. Paul was then addressing one particular socio-religious division, a kind of status game that they were playing within the church. Now, in our own situation, the exact same words might be more applicable to other potential divisions. In our church, say, well, what a town and gown or right and left-wing politics, or old and young, something like that. I'm not saying that we in this church suffer particularly from any of those issues, but the potential is there if we're not careful. Now, Paul begins 
as I, I think is inevitable, you think you have to, with our thought life. We have to learn to think about ourselves, first and foremost, as worshippers. There's a great levelling that takes place in worship. Because however much or little we might think of ourselves in relation to one another, the greatness of God is so vastly bigger that any differences between you and me are insignificant. But there's another even more compelling reason why we all stand equal before God. And I think Paul makes a glancing reference to this when he says, by the mercies of God. And whatever it might look like in the English, I think this phrase actually belongs to, by the mercies of God, present your bodies. Not, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. It doesn't make much sense to say, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What, what, what does that mean? But it means a lot when you say, present your bodies by the mercies of God. Particularly in the overall context of this letter. He's been at pains to point out from the beginning that it is only by God's grace that any of us can stand before him at all. Grace is mentioned 20 times in this letter. But I want to draw your attention to one particularly neat little phrase in chapter 5, verse 2, where he says, Through Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's a lovely synopsis of the gospel, I think. So when we come into God's throne room to worship... We leave all our credentials at the door and enter by grace alone, as the song says. Verse 1 encapsulates the root thought from which the whole rest of the passage springs. We're to think of ourselves primarily as worshippers equal before God and constantly before God. And the language he chooses to express this is strange and extreme presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Clearly, he's not talking in physical terms. He's not asking us to, uh, to go and lie down on a marble slab in a temple somewhere for the rest of our lives. That would be pointless, and it runs completely against what he goes on to say. No, he's addressing the way we are to think about our bodies. We have to regard them as if they've already been sacrificed, given away to God. Well, why does he go for our bodies when he's actually trying to get us to change our minds? Because our bodies are where it gets real for us. Our bodies are the place where the whole of life happens to us, where we interact with it. Think about the places our bodies go, the things we touch, the things we hear and see and eat and drink, and yes, the thoughts of our heads and the um, emotions of our hearts as well. All of it takes place in the body. And if my body, where it all happens, is sacrificed to God, then everything, the whole of life, lies beyond the reach of my will to try and grab it back from God. And notice again the mixture of singular and plural here. We, plural, present our bodies, plural. But in so doing, we're making a sacrifice, singular. It brings us back again, yet again, and you will come back again and again, to one another. And it is in our one another life that true sacrifice most often works itself out. Our lives now belong to God. But that big sacrifice of our whole selves to him 
involves unavoidably hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little sacrifices that we have to make, as it were, to each other. That's how the kingdom of God, this nation of priests, this church, is formed. Of course, verse 2, this one another life is completely at odds with the constant pressures that we're under to conform to the world around us. But if we're the light of the world, as Jesus says we are, then we have to influence the darkness, not the other way around. We need to cultivate a little godly rebelliousness, a determined resistance to society's expectation of the bland, the blind acceptance of the status quo. We're now citizens of another country, and our job is to detect and destroy all the satanic systems of mind control that govern so much of our world. And if we're going to do that successfully, Paul says, we need an ongoing renewal of our own minds, a complete transformation of our thinking. Because we all have blind spots due to our imperfect upbringing. We all have misapprehensions due to our imperfect education. We all have unnoticed prejudices and biases picked up from imperfect friends, imperfect family. We all have incorrect assumptions, sometimes relating to our core beliefs about life due to the cultures in which we have been raised. But Jesus, who overturned the money changers' tables, has come to overturn the tables on the, turn the tables on the world as well. And those who now continue Jesus' work should be known, as the early disciples were, as those guys who have turned the world upside down. As St. Bob of Dillon wisely puts it, change my way of thinking, make myself a different set of rules. Change my way of thinking, make myself a different set of rules. Going to put my good foot forward, stop being influenced by fools. This stubborn refusal of Christians to accept the status quo has produced massive social change throughout history starting with opposition to infanticide in ancient Rome via the abolition of the slave trade a couple of centuries ago, right through to the establishment of food banks in contemporary Britain today. You will find Christian revolutionaries at the back of many, many, many familiar institutions, like the British Welfare State, like the Red Cross, like Amnesty International, like Bernardo's Homes, the Salvation Army, countless hospitals and other organisations too numerous to mention. And throughout Europe for hundreds of years, who was it who provided health care, education, relief from poverty? It was the Christian monasteries. What all those people had in common was a rebellious streak. They looked around at the world and refused to conform. They discerned and tested, verse 2, and found that the world wasn't good and perfect and acceptable to God, so they took action they changed it. It takes a transformed mind to transform the world. But then the other side of the coin is presented in verse 3. World-changing rebels we might be, we must be. But if that makes us arrogant, then we've completely lost the plot. For Paul, the principal way that these Roman Christians were to be transformed from conformity to the norm is that unlike every other chap, or chapus, They aren't to regard themselves, I suppose that's Roman for chap, is it? Latin for chap. They aren't to regard themselves as better than anyone else. Now that was a a clear and present danger 
in Rome. Rome ruled the world. And Johnny Foreigner should jolly well kowtow. You don't have to look very far back in British history, do you, to find the same kind of attitude. It shows what empire does to uh, a national mindset. But I wonder if that's quite the same in Scotland today. If Paul were writing the same letter to the contemporary church in Glasgow or Edinburgh, would he be telling them not to be so arrogant? Or would he be encouraging them to wake up and see their potential? What's in the wind here? What's in the water? What are the accepted truths that run in our veins? If we were to make a sober judgment of ourselves, educated by a transformed mind to test and discern what is right and true and good, will we really be as bad as we fear we would be? My suspicion is that, nationally speaking, most Christians around here would face more of a step up than a slap down. Change my way of thinking. Right, we've taken a long time over that first section because everything else comes from it. Now that we're rolling, we're going to press the accelerator. Part two, the way every Christian should act. In verses four to seven, Paul continues to mix up his singulars and plurals in a nice, confusing way. And I think we need a rebellious, a transformed mind to understand this fully. Because our culture is riddled with individualism. Me, 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 me. And the pressure to conform is unending. Advertising encourages us to buy selfishly. Politicians encourage us to vote selfishly. Cultural depictions of romance encourage us to divorce selfishly. And on and on and on it goes. Even in the Christian subculture, we find elements of self-interested consumerism. In a letter, all Paul can do is make the point and move on, trusting in the Holy Spirit, working in their hearts to renew their minds. But there's no room for consumerism in what follows. Verses 4 and 5 encourage us to see ourselves in a completely different way. Not as distinct people, living distinct lives with distinct needs that we've somehow got to meet. But as one body, each part providing its unique contribution and benefiting equally from the unique contributions of the others. The image is one of both equality and of interdependence. Yes, we've all got distinct characteristics and gifts, but we're all important parts of one body. A knee joint is not a lung. And if it tries to become one, well, good luck with that. Certainly shouldn't feel under pressure to become one. Because there's no pecking order in the different roles God calls us to in the church. Like our salvation, verse 6, our gifts are given by God, not earned by our own excellence. So there's no point in bragging on one gift or envying another. If God has made me a knee, then the best thing I can do is to be the best knee I can be. And then Paul runs through a sample list of body parts for us. If it's prophecy, then use the gift according, literally, to the faith rather than our faith. And I suggest this probably means the faith of the ones listening rather than the faith of the prophet. If it's a gift of service, verse 7, then joyfully get on with serving in the body. Nothing's going to get done if you don't. If it's teaching, then use it in teaching the church. Don't be backward in coming forward if you're invited to teach. It's what you're for. It's your gift. 
And when you are teaching, rely on the gift God has given, as well as on your careful preparation. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you as you prepare. Ask him to work through you as you speak. It was a gift of encouragement, verse 8, which can be, as an old friend of mine used to put it, encouragement with a pin. Then use the gift when you're encouraging somebody. Don't just trot out some well-worn formula. Actually expect the Holy Spirit to speak through you, to give you that pin, to give you wisdom. If the gift is giving money, then use that gift generously, not stintingly, so that the church can function properly. And obviously, if God has gifted you in that way, he wants to continue doing it, so give it all away. You're not going to run out. If it's a leadership gift, do it like it mattered. Don't let your low self-image cause you to withdraw and aim low. I know that some leaders aim low to avoid disappointment. In fact, it guarantees disappointment. And that feeds back into your low self-image, just as the devil planned. And lastly, if your gift is in acts of mercy, which probably means ministries just like storehouse, helping the needy, then use the gift cheerfully, not in a condescending or grudging way. Do it like you like it. These are the kinds of actions and attitudes that will spring from right thinking and the sacrificed life. And lastly, it's after the way every Christian should think, the way every Christian should act, we come to the way every Christian should feel. Paul doesn't tell us in so many words that this is what he's doing. And perhaps we should be a little careful with it, but it's hard not to see in this passage that clear progression from thought to act to character. And if that's the case, then it's highly reminiscent of an old Chinese saying that goes, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. So a character reap a destiny. And looking around me over the last 59 years, I would say that's true. It certainly follows that if we get our thought life right, our actions will follow. And the discipline of right thoughts and right actions in the long term certainly do seem to produce Christ-like people. It seems to me both logical and biblical that this is the route to take if we want to become people who instinctively do right and think right. Because the habit has then gone beyond head and hands, deep into heart as well. So verse 9 starts off this last section saying, let love be genuine. Just let it be something you actually feel. And in the same way, we should be genuinely repulsed by sin. That doesn't mean other people's sin either. It means the sin you might otherwise be attracted to. You should be stuck to goodness like glue. You should become part of us, not just on the outside, but right through, uh, so it's written through us like a stick of rock at a heartfelt level. And so it goes on. Verse 10, love each other like brothers, competing only in honouring one another. Verse 11, be highly motivated, not lazy, in tune with the Spirit, and on fire for the service of God. Verse 12, be so in touch with the hope of your faith that you're naturally joyful. Be stoic under pressure. 
Let prayer be a constant habit, not kind of boxed up on the wall behind glass with, uh, for use in emergency only. Verse 13, be generous and hospitable. Verse 14, be generous-hearted even to those who hurt you and seek your harm. Verse 15, feel the joys and pains of others deeply enough that you laugh with them when they're happy and weep real tears with them when they're sad. I just don't think any of those things can be done without a deep transformation of the heart. And the list ends with a kind of coverall injunction that will result quite naturally if we become the kind of people who genuinely feel that way about each other. He returns at the very, very end to the thing he was most concerned about uh, at a local level, that arrogance thing. Well, enough said on that subject, I think. Let's conclude our study at the beginning of verse 16. We are to live in harmony with one another. Well, I'd say that was pretty much guaranteed if we're the kind of people that he's just described. And that brings us back to the idea that we started with this Pentecost Sunday. God is forming his people into a kingdom of representatives, ambassadors, priests, those who can truly represent him, his attributes, his character, his power, among all the other people groups of the earth. Verses 9 to 16 is a pretty good description of the kind of people who can fulfill that role. That's the kind of people every Christian can become. It starts with the head as we allow the Holy Spirit And, as we saw last week, the words of Jesus dwelling in us to transform our thinking. Then the head needs to control the hand as we put right thought into right action until actions become habits. And once that happens, the change will move from head and hands to the heart. Once we get used to the blessing we encounter every time we do right, we will soon find our very character changing. It won't just be in our intentions and our good deeds that we worship God every day. Our very hearts will be changed to be people who feel as he feels, a people who have his laws written on our hearts. A one another attitude will then be so deeply ingrained in us that nothing can erase it. And when that happens, another huge chunk of God's kingdom will have come to earth. Not only that, but we will be a people who truly belong there and know it. And then life will become a whole lot more fun. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to get closer to you. We've all got things wrong with us. We've all got our blind spots. We've all got areas that don't seem to be fully given over to you, however hard we try. We all have times when we don't feel we can connect with you at all. We have difficulties to face that we... uh, are not convinced that we can, even with you. So we stand before you unprofitable servants and we we cast whatever crowns we may have at your feet and, and worship you, Lord. And we invite you to come now by your Holy Spirit and minister to us. 
as we minister to each other. I pray that you'll meet us at our point of need.